Hey folks, welcome to the Green Root Podcast with Josh Schlossberg. I'm Josh Schlossberg, and the first question is, why am I doing this podcast? Well, that's a good question, and I've been asking myself the same one. There are so many environmental podcasts out there, why would I need to make yet another one talking about what green issues, environmentalism, environmental activism, climate change, that kind of stuff? Well, the reason is because a lot of that has been pretty unsatisfying to me personally. And I'll get into a little bit more about who I am and why somebody like me would do a podcast like this. But I found that a lot of the discussion does not go to the root. So it goes so far and then it stops. And there are lots of different reasons for that. There are reasons such as, well, one's funding comes from a particular source and you don't want to bite the hand that feeds you. A lot of it is people just don't have an in-depth understanding of the issues and not to toot my own horn, but I feel like I've been a part of this movement for long enough that I'm seeing things beyond just the surface. I think it is just the way people are thinking these days, and I suppose it's always been that way, but there are different lenses through which we view the world, and a lot of the environmentalist lens is a limited lens. So it's a broader angle lens than not caring about the natural world, but there's a lens that goes a bit broader and it goes from just caring about these issues to really being able to impact them in a meaningful way. Because ultimately, let's be honest, the environmental movement has not been that successful. Over time, since what, if you wanna say from Earth Day in 1970 or even a little bit before that, Rachel Carson, Silent Spring before that, John Muir, and there had been a lot of talking about environmental issues, but really the modern day environmental movement started around the 70s when people started realizing, hey, we are harming the planet, we're degrading the natural systems which deserve to exist on their own and the creatures that live in them, but ultimately we're also impacting ourselves because we depend on the planet, and of course the reality is we are really the same thing as the planet, just one manifestation. So it's been great to say, hey, I care about these issues and let's raise awareness, right? And that's what's happened. There has been a lot more awareness and there have been a fair amount of efforts and some of which have been successful. We've reduced a lot of pop uh, pollution and other impactful things. We've become a little bit better about toxics and, and a lot of things across the board, but really, if you look at the whole big picture, we're not progressing. In fact, it's a race against time, and I'm not necessarily a doomsdayer, but we can't deny that there has been massive species extinction, that climate change is getting worse, that ocean acidification, topsoil reduction, depleting the aquifers, these are just a handful of the things. You know, We've talked a lot about the problems in the world too, and that's that's important as well. But we haven't really been able to come up with legitimate solutions. So we haven't really progressed very far. And if you're an environmentalist and you don't critique your own movement, I'm sorry, but that's part of the problem. And what's ironic is that critiquing the environmental movement from inside the environmental movement is not accepted. It's not tolerated. It's not really processed. It's taken as anti-environmental, which is again, a part of that limited lens. So there is, you know, anti-environmental or people who don't care about the environment, then there are folks who start caring about the natural world and ecosystems. And then it's getting to the point where what can we actually do about it that's meaningful? That's what I'd like the Green Root podcast to get into. Some of those more meaningful steps. Sometimes they're just about awareness and consciousness. Sometimes it's about specific action. In fact, I'd like to see a lot of this tie into action. I think a lot of this is going to be me talking off the top of my head about various topics that I think about all the time, <laughs> just to purge myself of those thoughts. And because I've writing, I've been writing a lot and writing takes a long time, you know, and you try to get every sentence just perfect and then you find a publisher and all that or an editor publication. So podcast, I can get out a topic a lot quicker and put it out into the world and I will in a moment get into why I'm doing this all of a sudden. But yeah, this concept of 
we've not been succeeding as an environmental movement. We really need to rethink it. And there are a lot of folks who don't want to rethink it. And those folks are probably not going to be that interested in this podcast. And yeah, it's going to cut off a lot of potential audience, folks who just kind of want to talk about how everything's... It, it's weird because environmental movement, we're talking, oh, it's all terrible, but at the same time, not acknowledging, well, maybe because we're not doing a good enough job, a lot of other movements have been more successful in terms of social movements. A lot of social movements, even though there's still things that we need to improve upon, uh, across the board, we've really been improving in those ways. And there's still tons of issues in equality and, and things like that. But there's been a progression and those movements can really pat themselves on the back to a certain degree. The environmental movement, I'm not sure we can do that. And at the same time, the environmental issues are more evident, right? In a lot of social issues, it's kind of subjective. It's up to opinion to decide if this is really how things are or not. But in terms of that tree was there, it's no longer there. That is unequivocal evidence that that tree is gone and then the impacts of that loss of that tree or the forest. So I would like to see more progression in terms of environmental issues. I'm not seeing a ton of these deep discussions out there. There are some for sure. And I think a lot of places that talk about environmental issues occasionally do stumble on this stuff. But I found a lot of these folks are very resistant to it. In fact, not only resistant, they are hostile towards it. So Folks who are drawn to the Green Root podcast might not be the majority of folks who call themselves environmentalists. But what I've learned is it's not about trying to reach every single person in the world. It's about reaching a select group. And maybe that select group are the folks who move things forward. So that's kind of the target audience, I suppose, of this. And I'm going to talk about issues myself, but I'm also going to bring on a lot of other folks. And many of those folks might share a lot of the same perspective. Some of them might only share a little bit of the perspective. And I also want to talk to folks who don't really share it much at all. So it might be maybe more mainstream environmentalists who have done a lot of good things. And we want to talk about that and maybe bring up one issue of discussion and maybe folks who aren't that into the environment or have a very view, different view of it, folks that we wouldn't call environmentalists, but maybe think that they are in a way. So having those discussions, not doing it in a confrontational way, getting to the issue, hearing what they have to say, understanding where they're coming from, and then having an honest dialogue. So I'm pretty opinionated, but at the same time, I'm not threatened by an opposing viewpoint. And... I would say the only thing that really bugs me are the gatekeepers who have a conventional way of thinking and they won't let other ideas get out there. But of course, I mean, they don't see them as good ideas. So how are they going to? So that's why the Green Root podcast exists. And who am I? Who is Josh Schlossberg? I mean, not on a cosmic level, but on a basic level, I have been a... Most of my life, I guess, an environmentalist. So right now I am 41 and, you know, I always loved the natural world even as a kid. I would spend a lot of time in the forest. I would walk around. It's just a thing I love to do, walk around these different ponds and catch frogs, you know, and let the frogs go and things like that. There is this natural area behind my house that was kind of this preserved land, and I used to spend a lot of time there. And what happened in my teen years, there were some folks that wanted to do some development back there, and that was very upsetting to me because it was an area that I used to go for refuge. It was a place where I used to recharge and you know find a lot of enjoyment. And I found that to be a huge threat and to the point where I actually had nightmares about it. And eventually what I did when I was very young was they wanted to build this little road around this area here. And I, <laughs> I take the fifth. No, I'm not going to take the fifth. I, I was a juvenile. So I think, um, I think the statute of limitations has run out. So I did some minor vandalism in terms of, I pushed over a porta potty that was on the site that 
probably did not help the situation. It was an expression of my anger and my displeasure. I put some dead trees in the middle of the road. You know, it was not very effective. It was, it was silly, but it was the first thing that I had done in terms of this is a place that is precious, you know, not just to me, but to everyone. And they're doing things to harm it. And I'm going to do something about it. You know, nothing effective and mostly just from a place of rage, but regardless. So I think that's probably where my do something about the natural world started. And I became concerned about in high school issues like pesticide on lawns. I remember you know, we get these pesticides on the lawn and it would have that yellow tag and it's like, don't walk on this for 24 hours. And it's like, really? After 24 hours, it's fine. And I remember this one time I, I didn't realize it and I walked on it and I walked through all this poison. And I was like, why the hell do we have this on our grass at all? And so I convinced my parents to stop using that. And now actually the, the land where they still live there, it's basically become a nature refuge. There are all sorts of foxes and coyotes and deer and birds. I don't know because it's not as toxic. I don't know if that's the case or not, but I wrote a letter to the editor, to the local paper. So this is in upstate New York and where I was born and raised. And, you know, they, they published the letter and I was talking about, you know, it was a bit hyperbolic. Are we poisoning our children? Like I was 16 and I was talking about children, <laughs> our children. Um, but anyway, I cared about the issue. I genuinely cared about the issue while at the same time, yeah, it gave me a little bit of self-righteousness. <laughs> you know, there's, that's always a part of activism and that's something I've been addressing over the years, but let me not get ahead of myself too much. So I cared about these issues back in the day. It wasn't a popular thing. I mean, I was the only person I knew who cared about environmental issues. So I didn't have a group to go to or it wasn't values that other folks seem to have that much. Of course, you know, I read tons of books about it, so I became very educated on that. And I did find that there was a community of folks in the world, even if not in my high school. And then in college, I was vaguely involved with some activism. I went to college in Vermont and there's Vermont Yankee, which was a nuclear power plant. So I went to protests against that and, and shareholder meetings. I, I wasn't really particularly organized in regards to anything, but I was, I was a part of that. Meanwhile, I spent a lot of time in the forest. So I would hike in the woods all the time. Vermont was just this forested state, still is mostly. And I actually was able to, um, I would walk to my classes in the morning through about a mile and a half of forest. It was this town trail and is pretty amazing. That was literally my mornings or afternoons whenever I got to class. And I would hike through a forest, a beautiful trail to get to my classes in the rural Vermont, these Marlboro College, which is basically now just shutting down this year. It's farm buildings in this beautiful bucolic environment in this teeny, teeny town in Southern Vermont. And I would live during the summers outside. So I would either live in a tent on the school property or one year I lived in this cabin, which was basically a shack, no electricity. It was like, um, I don't know, half a mile from off a dirt road. And I lived in this shack or also in this screened in gazebo I built with a friend. So a friend of mine lived out there and sometimes his girlfriend was out there. So there was a you know, a few of us, a couple of us out there and some of us would hang out there. So we spent a lot of time in the woods. So that was kind of, in a sense, more important than any activism I've done. It's really being a part of that natural world and, and loving the forest and respecting it because realizing, you know, it when you just, you live in a house all the time and then you just go for nice little hikes, you think nature is just all kind and good. But no, nature can kill you. Nature's indifferent. It doesn't want to hurt you, but it doesn't really want to save you. But if you learn how to respect it properly, you can you can manage and you realize there's a lot that it provides you. And of course, in general, it provides us all of life. But just in terms of being in the modern day and being able to live in the woods, it's not easy, but man, it's amazing, amazing experience. So I was doing that, working on an organic farm in the morning, 
all sorts of stuff like that. That was that was really important to me. And yeah, sometimes I took mushrooms <laughs> and uh, other um, natural substances. Um, get me thinking about things and feeling really a part of the natural world. And then I worked in public schools because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wanted to educate folks on environmental issues and other issues that were important to me. I figured it was too late to educate adults. So let's work in the schools, you know, get them while they're young. So I started doing substitute teaching. I started doing special education and I did that for three or so years in rural Vermont public schools and the kids were great, but I hated the schools because I always hated school. And here I was sitting in a school classroom with the fluorescent lights and one of these desks. And I was like, what am I doing? I hate these places. So I decided to not do that anymore. And I decided that I was going to be an environmental activist and I was going to move out to the West Coast where the big forests were. So I was inspired by tree sitting and stuff like that. And I went out to Northern California to check it out. I went on a backpacking, sort of hitchhiking trip for a couple months or so. Hitchhiked around the state, had some interesting adventures, hung out in the redwoods and things like that. And I was like, yep, this is what I'm going to do. So I did. I moved out maybe a year after that uh, with a girlfriend at the time. We were going to be in Northern California, but then it was hard to find a place to live for whatever reason in this one town I was looking at. So we went up to Oregon just to check it out. And I really liked this town of Eugene, Oregon, I guess for various reasons. It had a lot of natural world very close to the town itself. And then the Pacific Northwest rainforests were mind-blowing. So decided to stay out there and she eventually, we eventually split up, but I stayed out there and I was out there for about six years doing environmental activism. So I started by going door to door with, it was called PERG at the time. I'm not sure that still exists, public interest research group. So it was basically knocking on the doors for various different causes. So a lot of them were environmental, uh, Sierra Club and things like that. Basically asking for membership, asking for money, and telling them a little bit about whatever campaigns we're working on. I, there were some other issues too. I, I went door to door for, was, uh, we did different campaigns with that group. So there was one for gay rights, something to do with uh, legislation that was trying to prevent uh, gay people from getting married. This was early in the day, so this was, this was before the laws changed, and things uh, like people of color in developing nations, a few other issues as well. But the thing I was most intrigued and drawn by was the environmental stuff. But over time, I realized this canvassing thing was not really activism. It was it was very limited in that, well, first of all, I was just asking people for money for big environmental groups, and I wasn't even sure how much of the money went to the thing because I was getting paid. And then also the way they treated the canvassers, it was really arbitrary. It was it was very strange. They would run, they would burn through people really quickly. So here were these folks like myself who were super eager to do stuff. We weren't even sure if it was the right stuff. And we didn't even know if we would have a job the next week because it was based on this quota. So it was funny is I would do very well sometimes. Like I, I would pull in some of the most money and then sometimes I wouldn't it was based on just where they send you. And um, what's funny is the folks who were best at explaining the environmental issues were not necessarily the people who made the most money. It was about salesmanship. So, you know, it was a useful skill. I did develop my ability to speak to people and there is nothing more difficult than going up to people's doors when they're at their house and say, hey, care about this issue and give me money. Everything since then has been easy. But yeah, they, they burned through a lot of folks, and I, I think they actually just wanted to get rid of me <laughs> um, for, for various reasons. And so then after I remember this, like it was the week that I made the most money in a day that I ever had for the organization and myself. Then they gave me a couple places that didn't even have really houses, were just businesses, and of course I made no money. And then they were basically saying, oh, you didn't make the quota, we're going to have to let you go. And I was like, what is going on here? And yeah, I realized it was its kind of a scam. And I don't even know the point of it. I mean, I guess it's just to bring in 
some money for some people and to raise awareness of these certain group names. I don't know. Anyway, I knew that was not it. So I started to engage with some of the other more grassroots environmental groups, which are kind of, you know, I guess in between mainstream and radical groups. So these were kind of offshoots of Earth First. Earth First was kind of the direct action folks in the woods, blockades and tree sets. These were the folks who kind of grew out of that and became a little bit more establishment, but still had strong stances, but not super strong stances. And they did a lot of basically old growth protection through litigation. And they had a lot more public campaigns. So I would go to their potlucks and their meetups and whatever and write letter writing parties and I started getting involved with them and at the same time I was actually getting involved with the direct action group so it was Cascadia Forest Defenders and which was basically offshoot of Earth First and so there were tree sit stuff and there were all these uh you know more hardcore campaigns I guess you call it where folks actually go out in the woods and and do different things I never climbed up a tree I'm I kind of have a fear of <laughs> heights in that regard. But I was a part of a lot of that stuff simultaneously. So I kind of had foot in both worlds, more that radical world, which I was like, cool, a lot of this resonates. I like that we're actually going out there trying to do stuff. But then realizing, oh, but litigation actually could be more effective in some cases. And just being antagonistic all the time is not really bringing people over to our side. And then I realized how it worked together. Well, litigation, you try that. If that doesn't work, you send in the hippies. So it was really interesting. And I started up a canvas for that other group. So I took my canvassing skills into that other group. And there I started doing what I consider a little bit more legitimate outreach because we would talk about more in-depth things than just, oh, the Sierra Club, it's protect the environment. You know, here's our you know, watershed and they want to do logging in the forest watershed, which will increase erosion and impact our drinking water. So more specific stuff. I got better at talking to people about those individual issues while also bringing in some money for myself a little bit and for the organization. And it brought in a lot of, you know, I would get a lot of signatures and contact for the organization. So in a sense, it was the organization wasn't making a ton of money from it, but enough to pay me and a little bit and then it was also getting all of these contacts that that is the bread and butter of these grassroots organizations that are not just you know, membership funded, but also foundation funded. And that's also where things started getting a little weird. So I started finding some of these other groups. So particularly it was this group called Native Forest Council. And they would talk about how the mainstream environmental groups, not just the big Sierra Club, but even that smaller grassroots group was, well, what they would call selling out the forest. So it was basically they were being kind of middle of the road compromising and and just trying to get democratic politicians in in order to protect the environment. And how well was that working? Not that well because, you know, the Democrats at the time, it was, well, prior to this, but Clinton, Clinton and Gore, they had they actually advanced the amount of logging that was going on in the world. So it's kind of like realizing this right and left divide was not quite what they made it out to be. The Democrats were not always good guys on the environment. They were a little bit better, but a lot of times it was kind of that whole wolf in sheep's clothing, not that there's anything wrong with wolves or sheep. But that became something that came a little bit more on my radar. You know, And then there was the radical folks in the woods that everyone was kind of like, well, we're glad they're there, but we're not sure what, what's going on with them. And I decided to go to grad school. So I went to grad school for nonprofit management because I wanted to be a part of some nonprofit stuff and understand how to make it all happen. And I got my graduate certification in nonprofit management. And then I got an internship and the organization I ended up going with was Native Forest Council. And that's when I started getting more of that education about, well, don't think that just because it's a Democrat that they're advocating for the forest. And so I dove headfirst into that and also had some other affiliates, uh, someone named Shannon Wilson. He was a, a 
big mentor to me. He's part of a group called Eco Advocates Northwest, and he's still chugging along there in Eugene, Oregon. Um, a guy named Mark Rabinowitz, who doesn't consider himself an activist, but works on lots of different things from forest environmental issues to um, peak oil stuff to just political things in general. He has a website called Connect the Dots and uh, something called Oil Empire, oilempire.us, where he talks about all those connections, you know, connecting those different issues. So he got me thinking about all that stuff. Uh, but Native Forest Council with Tim Hermack. Tim Hermack was the guy who was in charge of that. He was a part of something called Zero Cut back in the day, which was this push to, no, let's not cut forests at all on public lands. Let's leave these public forests, which are owned by everyone, so national forests and things like that, and they're some of the most eco rare ecosystems, and they're still functioning to a certain degree. Let's leave them alone from any form of extraction, logging, grazing, drilling, mining. And that was a very hardcore perspective at the time, even though it seems pretty basic. And what's funny, most people already assume public lands are off limits to that, but they're not. And his, his perspective was actually one of our biggest obstacles is not the corporations or the right wing, but the rest of the Democrats and the mainstream environmental movement who don't want these concepts to go forward for whatever reason, you know, for whatever reason. And let's just say that it's not because they don't want to protect the force. They just don't think it's realistic. But then the idea of, no, the way to really get a movement going is you coalesce around a, a big picture idea that can get people excited. And that came from David Brower, who was originally part of Sierra Club and then got ousted because he was, quote, too radical. And um, he had made some compromises and then realized this is not the way to do it. The role of the environmentalist is to basically be a, a lawyer for the forest. Like you don't admit wrongdoing or like say, oh, here's what all we ask. It's like, no, we're, we wanna protect the forest and maybe the laws aren't going to be 100%, but we're gonna be asking for everything that we think is worthwhile. So I was involved with that organization for a while. I was a part of something called the Forest Voice newspaper. So I started doing a lot more writing. I started writing tons of letter, letters to the editor and that's how I became somewhat known in that town is just writing things on on issues that were, you know, maybe a little radical, but not that radical for Eugene were somewhat accepted as in we should be protecting the forest because it gives us water and whatever. I was a part of organizing rallies with other folks uh, as well. We had all sorts of rallies, you know, for tons of different issues. We, we involve lots of different folks. So we were working with people who were working on um, public lands logging, but also folks who lived on private land who there were all of these all of this clear-cut logging going on on private forests which is even more damaging than what goes on in public forests and then all this herbicide spraying from helicopters so I got involved with that cause and there we had big rallies around that you know we got hundreds of people at these rallies and and we got in the media all the time and we um we brought together some of the folks working at the college and the radicals and and all this stuff. And then actually, and this is a whole other story I can tell another time, the police shut down some of our protests and tasered some kids and it became this big hullabaloo. And it really did fragment a lot of it. And then we found Homeland Security was investigating. It was crazy. And we were just, it was basically just hippie environmentalists. And we're like, what's going on here? And I I decided to start up a different little campaign. So I was still working with folks in Eco Advocates and Native Forest Council. Eventually, I, I, I no longer was working at Native Forest Council. Oh, I also, also started a canvas up for Native Forest Council as well. And then got other people to do the canvas once I organized it so I didn't have to do that anymore. And just to be clear, you should always canvas. And canvas is important, but man, it is hard. And... Uh, yeah, I'm glad I'm not doing that anymore. Anyway, so I decided to start up this other campaign, which was basically just taking up this old campaign that existed. It was called Stumpqua. So Umpqua Bank was a bank in the area, and they, well, they're, they're just a big bank, right? And the point of it was this. There was a big timber baron in the area. There's a few, but there was this one timber baron, and, you know, he owned all these 
all these private lands, and he would do also a lot of public lands logging. So a lot of folks considered him, you know, an environmental enemy. And I probably did at the time. I don't see it that way anymore. I, I disagree with what he's doing, but I don't, I don't think he's a bad person anymore. He's just playing a role and doing what he thought is right. But the the idea was, how do we influence these corporations? It's like, well, you can't. You know, they're they're making money off of it. There's not really laws to stop them, so they're going to keep doing it. Well, you can go to the other entities that they're involved with. So he was the chairman of the board of this Umpqua Bank, people called Stumpqua, and there was pressure on that bank um, by removing, by getting people and businesses to remove their money from the bank. That was a way at kind of hitting at that guy's timber practices. So... I thought that was a cool campaign. It wasn't going on anymore, even though millions of dollars had been withdrawn from that bank. So it was an effective pressure point in a sense, right? So, you know, I don't know what the ultimate goal was that Umco would just get rid of him and he's no longer the chairman of the board, but, or if it would be just to call attention to it in a way, I don't know, but it, it seemed effective at the time and maybe it's still effective. And so I started doing which was ultimately kind of a one-person thing, but I had a few other folks that were helping me out here and there. And basically going to table in front of the bank and ask people as they came out, hey, were you aware of these connections? Well, we want to put pressure on them to change their practices and not cut public forests and to not spray herbicides and to not clear cut and blah, blah, blah. And will you assist with that? And... It was it was kind of working, right? But then what happened was a police officer came. And I, I'm not going to get super in-depth with all this. Maybe I, I will another day. But it was the same cop who busted up this other that other rally we had. And he basically went on to say I couldn't be there, which I knew was not true. I had actually consulted with an attorney in advance of that about whether I was doing everything legal, and I was. And he kept making up all this stuff that was not true. And it's actually on video. I, I have it on YouTube. It's It's got like a couple hundred thousand views, even though I haven't done much with it. And basically, it was him saying I couldn't be there. And I was agreeing that I would leave for the day, but that he was wrong because I have a problem with keeping my mouth shut. And I was still, I was abiding by him mostly because that's right. I had an intern with me at the time and she was new to it and I didn't want to freak her. I was like, all right, I'm just going to pack stuff up and I'll get back to this another time. But I was videotaping him. I let him know I was videotaping him. I held up the camera kind of just about my chest height. So I wasn't, you know, um, blocking our conversation. And he was just saying all this stuff. And eventually he was like, have you been recording me? And it's like, dude, I told you that already twice. And then he tried to take the camera from me. And at that point, I didn't let him. I just held it. And he grabbed me and threw me on the ground and kneed me and injured me. And he took me to jail. And I had been arrested prior to that. I've never any convictions or anything like that, but just for being parts of a little protest or whatever. And he, yeah, took me to jail and they put me in solitary. I don't, I don't know why. And they wouldn't let me call an attorney. But luckily people, well, the intern let people know and then people were calling in for me. And I did get out that later that evening after many hours of basically meditating in the cell to not have a panic attack from claustrophobia. And that was when I was like, man, I can't even do this stuff anymore without getting into trouble. What's going on? And that falling apart, as well as a few other personal issues I needed to tend to, I ended up moving back to Vermont. Um, during the time in Eugene, though, I'd started becoming aware of this issue of biomass energy and biomass energy is the piece that I found very interesting to bring up because this is when the impacts of something, which is basically burning trees and trash for energy a lot of environmentalists loved it because they called it renewable energy. And ultimately, that is one of the things that is spurring me to do this podcast right now, which I'll talk about at the end, is my appearance in Planet of the Humans film where they have me talking about biomass energy. And at the time, no one gave a shit. And now everyone's like, oh, yeah, it's really bad. 
and realizing, no, no, the environmentalists were hugely in support of it and made it very difficult to speak about that issue. So that's very interesting that now people are like, oh, of course. It's like, well, that's the process. You have to speak out against an issue and then the environmentalists shut you down. So I probably will get into that more another time. But I was working on that issue a little bit in Eugene. It was Shannon Wilson who called my attention to what he was calling understory clear cuts, which are basically some elements of thinning in forests for wildfire. It's a very complicated issue, but um, needless to say, it has a fair amount of impacts and then burning that stuff for energy. And I was calling a bit of attention to out there. We were talking about it and people didn't really care that much. And then when I went back to Vermont, I was working on that issue again because there were a lot of power plants proposed for the Northeast. So I started really working on that. The, I guess you would call it the anti-biomass issue. And what was funny about that is, like I said, I found most of the environmentalists were in support of biomass and they didn't want to talk about it. And sometimes they would behind the scenes. And basically I became blacklisted, censored, slander, all that sort of stuff. Found it hard to get funding all of a sudden. Um, Media was not as keen about talking about it, even though they would include me in their stories all the time prior. And I kind of experienced a bit of an awakening akin to what I had before in terms of the Democrats are not always the the um, saviors because it was the Democrats who were the biggest push for biomass and realizing that, man, the environmental movement itself has, has these massive blind spots or, or something. And you know, even inside of the anti-biomass movement, there were all these pro-biomass people and then there became conflicts with that and those folks tried to take my funding away. And ultimately, um, long story short, I became tired of that. And just like, you can't, you can't do legitimate stuff in the environmental movement and get grant funding because most of the grant funding comes from these foundations and most of the foundations comes from corporate interests, many of which are energy companies. So... I realized the game was rigged and was starting to think about, well, all right, if if a lot of being an environmentalist is calling attention to stuff, getting awareness and just trying to get the media and the media doesn't really understand these issues or is very one-sided, why don't I just become the media? So I had done all this writing over time and so at the time I was an activist and then I was sort of an advocacy journalist. So I put out a publication called the Biomass Monitor that was legitimate scientific information, but just from one perspective, just the negative aspects of biomass. And then I kind of shifted and like, well, I personally think biomass energy does more harm than good, but let's have that conversation in one place because I don't think all the the pro-biomass people are bad people. So let's put it in, let's have a conversation about all sides of it. So I created this publication like that and it got out there a fair amount. I would have op-ed pieces, pro and con. I write articles where I would literally... I would get every side that I could on it. And what was interesting is even as my writing got better and a lot of the folks who really were interested in what I was doing would you know, pay for the subscription that I was putting out, it was really hard to get any purchase uh, in the mainstream. So whereas before with my more combative, just general radical activism, which I realized was actually fairly mainstream at the time, it got plenty of attention. My genuine efforts to let's get all sides of the story. People weren't interested in that, which was a bit upsetting. Um, I transitioned over into being an investigative journalist for lots of different issues. I wrote articles for dozens and dozens of different places as a freelancer. I won several awards. Not that that means anything, but some of the public was accepting that what I was doing was good, but it was it was still extremely difficult to get my stuff out there. And in fact, the better I got at writing, the more comprehensive my articles became, the harder it was to get stuff out there because I was realizing so many of the editors and publishers were ideologues. Like they had a one perspective that they wanted to put out to the point where I realized almost all media had become activism. So during the time when I was an activist, you know, I was looked down on because I was just an advocacy journalist and not a general, uh, a genuine journalist. And then I evolved towards being a journalist. And then a lot of those folks I realized have actually been either started becoming activists or always were. I think it's a little bit of both. A lot of media has just become, you know, one-sided. And why is that? Because that's what people want to read. People want to read, just want to reinforce their own opinions. So this 
this roundabout thing, um, I, I've done other work on the side as well. I, I've been a coach and I, I write fiction and things like that. So I didn't need to depend just on the journalism thing. But I decided it was about a year ago to take a sabbatical from journalism and decide whether I wanted to engage in the fray again. And I've kind of just been sitting back. And then the pandemic hit. And the pandemic... So I've been paying attention to viral contagion for quite some time. Uh, basically since the H1N1, I was aware of pandemics in my fiction. I write primarily horror. It's a whole different thing. I'm not even going to get into that now. But um, biological horror, what I call. So I write a lot about disease and I've been concerned about disease for a while and, and stuff tying into zoonotic diseases, so things that come from the natural world into humanity, which is a lot of the diseases. And I've written a lot of articles about that too, but also my fiction. And so then when this pandemic started coming, I, I saw it coming when it started up in China. I'm like, oh man, here it is. I thought H1N1 was going to be the bad one. And I was like, oh man, here this comes. And basically, you know, if it's true that this came from a a natural source, which we think it, we think it did. We think it's come from bats and then maybe pangolins are involved in, and who knows, maybe there's stuff to do with a lab, but it came from nature, it seems. So that's legitimate as in destruction of nature. You know, we go out further into it and we bring back these diseases. Um, things like our relationships to the animal world, eating animals, um, animal husbandry, breeding them, captive animals, all of that tied into it. And I kind of started to decide that I guess I was going to be an activist again. And I was going to focus on that connection between disease and environmental issues. Because of course, if you work on, if you look at things in terms of, well, we need to protect habitat and we need to protect species and, and animals, you, you get the the fruits of protecting the environment, but doing it in a way that humans understand. Oh, nobody wants the disease, so let's care about that. So that was already in my mind the last few months. And then Planet of the Humans came out, the Jeff Gibbs film. Um, Michael Moore is the executive producer with Ozzy Zayner as a producer as well. And I was in that film. So I, it was a segment from, I don't know, eight years ago or something like that when I was back in Vermont working on the biomass issue and calling attention to things going on in the Northeast and nationally. I was a part of this. I was running this national campaign through an organization called Energy Justice Network around biomass stuff. And so they they kind of caught me at the height of me doing that, I guess. And, you know, I was talking about the trees and at the facility and how they're burning it and all the CO2 and air pollution and that in the film, you see us getting caught trespassing and the guy trying to trick us into getting arrested. And yeah, trespassing is a theme that comes up a lot in my life. But so Jeff Gibbs, the film was going to come out. I wasn't sure when, and then it's coming out. And I was like, oh, we'll see. I don't think it'll make that much of a splash. And then he put it out on YouTube. And right as of now, you know, only a couple weeks later, it has over 7 million views. And the conversation from it, even if a lot of it is disingenuous, has been tremendous. So it did what it's supposed to do. It triggered this discussion about the limitations of the mainstream environmental movement and the deeper root causes of environmental degradation that have not been brought up in the mainstream. I mean, folks like us have been talking about it for a long time, and I, most of the folks, or a lot of the folks I know, not anything new. But the film was put together so well, and... You know, I think in large part because Michael Moore has such a platform and influence, it got out in the mainstream. And what's ironic is most of what we're seeing is the mainstream environmentalist reaction to it. Like they pick a few things that they hate about it and then they say, oh, that's why the whole thing is garbage. And what that basically is, is the, I mean, it's what I've seen for, for years, but it's kind of the death throes of the environmental movement because I'm seeing so many regular people who aren't, you know, already indoctrinated with an ideology who are taken by the messages in this film, because there are a variety of them, of just, we gotta, we gotta take a look at what the root causes are. And sure, solar and wind, I don't have a problem with doing some appropriate solar and wind, but I don't have that illusion that that's all we need to do is just plug in a few panels and you know everything goes as normal. I think this pandemic shows that it doesn't. 
And that's what's so beautiful about the film as well is that it's put out during this time, you know, for free on YouTube for 30 days while people are reconsidering the world. They're like, man, maybe things are not what we thought they were and maybe they can get better and maybe we need to rethink things from the ground up. So I've been, that combination of the pandemic in this film, you know, not the fact that I'm in it, sure. The fact that I'm in it, it was just, um, now maybe I have some platform because people like that concept of social proof. I'm like, oh, hi, I'm an environmentalist with stuff to say. Yeah, who cares? Oh, I was in that movie. Oh, in the mic, you know, so I don't put that much stock into <laughs> my non-celebrity status, but other folks do. And so realizing now might be the time to create this podcast where I can talk to people about these issues and, and run my mouth as well, because realizing how much of the environmental conversation is limited by the gatekeepers, the gatekeepers in the mainstream media. So the mainstream environmental movements and most of the media. And you can see that that's kind of what's going on um, in returns in terms of the response and, and the coverage. It's, you know, th it's gotten some good coverage, but then it also gets this very slanted, limited view. And, and that's fine, you know, that there are cr legitimate critiques of the film, but um, it's funny because it, it shows how, no, we're not interested in that conversation. The mainstream move, environmental movement is not interested in that conversation. So can't count on them anymore, but let's stop blaming them and let's do something better ourselves and use this momentum. So I wrote a piece that I'm shopping around right now and hopefully that will be out in publication soon. Maybe, maybe when you listen to this, it will already be out. And basically it's about my thoughts on the response to it, particularly from the mainstream environmental movement and how we can move forward. And we move forward through looking at the root causes. So hence the, the green root podcast. I was thinking about calling it the green pill, you know, a play on that red pill from the matrix, but that has a lot of baggage. And also the, the name was taken by like four other podcasts. So the green root it is for right now, it's kind of, you know, finding where where things go and you know i don't know if the analogy holds because like all right so then we dig up we pull up the green root well is the green root the good thing or the bad thing i don't know you you figure that out but i feel like it's simple enough that can maybe appeal to folks who who are not necessarily as expert on these issues but are interested in these issues and the conversation here is going to be a bit different from the vast majority of the environmental discussions that are going on out there. And I'm going to find folks who have been doing what I feel to be really good work over the years, you know, using both my journalistic abilities and also my activist sentiments and looking at issues from, you know, not just what corporations are doing and politicians and the Democratic Party and left and right and stuff like that, but also consumption, our role. Corporations don't exist without us feeding into it. More deeper is like, why do we consume? And then things like the lenses through which we view the world. So that could be consciousness, awareness, you know, not, I'm not really getting into spiritual stuff. I'm not sure if I believe in spirituality, certainly not talking about souls or, or whatever. That's fine if you're into that. That's not my thing as much, but still looking at elements of psychology as to why are we consuming this? Why are we living this way? Do we have to be that way? Things that, you know, the Sierra Club doesn't want to talk about. And maybe that's not the job of the Sierra Club. The Sierra Club is doing some good stuff. And maybe we can't expect them to do things that are out of their wheelhouse. So I would like these conversations to happen. Yeah, I would like them to lead into action. I'm not sure what actions I would be taking beyond, you know, working on my connection with, with the world right now. But this is one of them, I suppose. And I'm interested as to where this will be going. And I'm glad to have this outlet. And I'm kind of glad to be back talking about these issues and really being able to come from my heart in terms of you know, I used to be an activist and I was a bit angry and I, I only saw one side of it. And then I was a journalist and I tried very hard to get everyone's perspective and leave mine out of it. And now I'm like, you know what? Screw it. This is my perspective. I do want to hear other perspectives and I'm open to other perspectives. Um, but we're not going to 
mess around. You know, we're going to really get to the root of this. And if it involves explaining how current day environmentalism is not succeeding, well, then that's what we have to do. I don't want to harp just on what's going wrong, though. We have to point out what's wrong in order to make things right. And that's one of the things I very much appreciate about Planet of the Humans is it points out the problem. And does it have the solutions? No, it, it's, I don't think it's trying to. It's saying we've not been framing the problem right. Now that we have a reframe of the problem, how do we move forward? And that's up to us. And when we're seeing the mainstream environmental movement's response to the film, not like, okay, we're going to take some of these points and move forward in a different way. They're not. They're like, no, everything we've been doing, fine. Um, your film is an entire lie, which of course is not true. And we don't actually want people seeing it. So that kind of exposes it right there. So those of us who want to move things forward, now is our opportunity. Let's take the the momentum of this film because it is important because it's it's gotten out to a mainstream audience, a, a deep message that the gatekeepers in the mainstream environmental movement and the, the media, the left-leaning media and legacy media just has kept out of the discussion because they weren't interested in it or they, they disagree with it. It got out there. Basically, instead of counting on the gatekeepers, you know, you build your own gate. So, you know, Michael Moore had made it through the process of getting a name for himself. So that's how that happened. So Jeff Gibbs' amazing film was able to get out to you. And for those who have watched it with an open mind or who want to have genuine conversations about this, I hope you engage with this. A lot of what I see out there is, is not genuine engagement. Um, people are just like... The film is garbage and there's nothing from it. And it's like, all right, those are not people who want to engage. And, and I don't even feel the need to debate them. It's just, it's not interesting. They're, they're not coming at it from any perspective of looking to move forward. They, they just want to prop up the status quo. And, you know, sometimes they're doing some good stuff so that they can do what they want. If they want to engage in a genuine way instead of just like some angry Twitter screed, then that's fine. And I'd be happy to talk to pretty much anyone but I'm not going to waste my time, you know, commenting here and there on the internet with people who are not interested in discussion. This is about if you're listening to this and you're like, I, I, some of this resonates with me, not all of it, but some of it, you're the audience. You're the audience and you're the one who I want to engage with so we can move this forward. And I'm excited. I hope you are. And I hope you stay tuned for more.